The topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4WN Radio. Fearless, Fabulous You. I am your host, Melanie Young, and I am so excited about this show for a million reasons. First of all, I'm talking with an author, Bing Bing, and a travel writer, Bing Bing, and an entrepreneur who created her own magazine that spotlights women, who has this book that it literally spoke to my soul. I actually felt I was reading about myself in some of the chapters, but I'm reading about her and her life. The book is called Call You When I Land, which is interestingly what I used to tell my parents when I would give them 24 hours notice that I was flying to Japan uh, or Australia, which is usually how I'd handle it with my parents. I never told them in advance I was going anywhere. I would just be boarding the plane and say, call you when I land. This is the name of the book. The author is Nikki Vargas. It's such a fun story. First of all, she is uh, got a great resume in travel writing, but more. Nikki, uh, here's the premise of the book. She called off her wedding, quit her job, and chased her passion around the globe and documents it in Call You When I Land. And it's a coming-of-age story, a memoir, bumps in the road on the journey of life, coming to terms, uh, leaving behind, finding anew, and embracing her passion. Now, isn't that what I'm all about if you're less fabulous you. Yes. And that's why I'm excited to have Nikki Vargas join us on Fearless Fabulous You. Hi, Nikki. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. And what a beautiful introduction. Oh my gosh. I should have you just introduce my book at all future events. <laughs> well, I'm, I was in, in my prior life a publicist, so it's all about building up. But you know, I I really I mean everything I say. I'm very sincere. Uh, I really love this book and I, I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people. I've been living on the road for two years as a nomad until uh, 2022. So I lived on the road as nomad and people follow me. So that's why it spoke to me because I've done some pretty ridiculous, crazy things. Some people do it for love. I do it for travel and you do too. But let's get down to some basics. I always like to start my shows and my guests with a little bit about their background. And you have a very interesting one because you were born and raised in Colombia and you have a really accomplished family. Uh, talk about them and how they inspired you. Yes. So I'm originally from Bogota. Um, you would never guess it. <laughs> if no. you see me, if you hear me, uh, people usually are like, huh, I thought you were from like, you know, Dakota or is it like North Dakota or something. Uh, never ever would they guess Bogota, but I am, uh, immigrated to the States with my father and mother at a really, uh, young age, uh, really at the height of civil unrest in Colombia. I remember, um, we were living in Bogota in this apartment and a car bomb went off a block away from where we lived. And it was meant to target, uh, a major bank that was, uh, up the street. And, uh, this, uh, the bomb went off and it shattered all the windows. It shook the windows of our apartment 
And that was really one of the final straws for my parents who at that point in time were already along with other Colombians sort of facing this very, very scary, violent and tumultuous period in the country's history. And so they made the decision to immigrate to the States. And um, from there, uh, we lived in Miami a little bit. Uh, They did get divorced. And eventually, all of our stories found us in Chicago, where my dad got remarried to this beautiful woman named Yana, who's uh, a dentist. And my mother got remarried to a wonderful man named Chris. And uh, and that's really where my story and the beginning of the book takes off. Um, and my family, uh, so, so, so supportive throughout the writing of this book and really shaped me to be the woman that I am today, um, especially my father, just always, always pushing me to stand up for myself, to never take no for an answer and to always walk into the room and make my presence known. And I just think that I really credit so much of who I am to, to my family. I think that's such a great story. And, you know, as you, as you talk, Nikki, I think about the news right now, it's 2023 right now, as we're talking and immigration is all over the news. And, and in New York city, there's a hundred thousand immigrants living at the Roosevelt Hotel or wherever, and everybody is going on and on. And but you think about, you know, and I want everybody here listening, you know, immigration is, you know, you think it's a problem where you're living in your fine skyscrapers in New York. Most of the people who are coming here are escaping something far worse. Mm-hmm. They're leaving because of, as you explained, you were living at a time of civil unrest, uh, hunger, famine. Don't discount people who are coming here to save their lives and have a better life because that's, and a lot of these people are highly educated. I mean, you come from, I think you had two plastic surgeons in the family, dentists, mm-hmm. doctors, you know, highly intelligent. I think it's really important because some of the greatest people who've come into the United States came as immigrants, including my own family in the 1800s. Um, this kind of shaped you and, and you have gone back to Colombia many times since, um, I'm curious what was who or what sparked your curiosity about the world and your desire to travel. I mean, you actually have a travel DNA. Like I have a travel DNA. I also have a shopping DNA, but that's another story. Uh, as did <laughs> yeah. my parents. My parents were world travelers. They kept scrapbooks. They made me keep scrapbooks. It was just ingrained in me as my grandparents. What about you? You know, it's funny. Growing up, travel was always a part of my life. It was something my family prioritized. It was something that, you know, we really took these family vacations. And to their credit, our family vacations uh, were pretty unique. You know, we went to Russia, to St. Petersburg. We went to um, get a, we booked like a summer home in uh, San Juan Islands off of Washington and saw orca whales. We had all of these incredible trips. We, you know, went to Chichen Itza down in Mexico. And so at the time, I really understood travel to be two things. I understood it to be a luxury and I understood it to be something that only my parents could swing. And so I say that because when I became an adult and I graduated college and I was living in New York, the idea that I could travel independently on my own dime, working an entry-level job in one of the most expensive cities in the world felt completely unattainable. 
And I think so much of that is because the idea of travel to me had always been something that was reserved for when you were a family or when you were retired and travel before that just sort of seemed like it was really outside my reach. And once I began to actually learn about travel in the sense, submerge myself in the travel industry, learn about things like travel hacking and and learn about tips and tricks in this whole wide world that is dedicated to making travel accessible and affordable, that blew the lid off my life. And in my early 20s, one of my first trips that I booked on my own dime was to Colombia. And that was such a game changer for me because it showed me that not only could I travel at that age on that measly salary on that budget, but that I could also learn to prioritize travel if I made certain decisions in my life that made that the priority. And yeah, after that, I mean, I really, I really think that that trip to Colombia set me on course. It also set you on course in a lot of ways because you changed your life many ways. You had a fiance, you were living in France with your French fiance, who was a boyfriend <laughs> for a long time. And then he proposed. And then you were planning this ridiculously insane, beautiful wedding in the Hudson Valley with the autumn fee. But there were so many details. <laughs> you know, you document it. And then you went on the trip. You came back and you and you went on a solo trip like three days before your wedding. I think you canceled. Yes. Yes. So this is the this is probably the most, um, how can I say? This is that trip to Argentina. My decision to solo travel to Argentina right before my wedding is the most impactful trip of my life. And that is also where I begin the book, Call You When I Land. Um, I was less than two weeks out from my wedding and I had up until that point been really avoiding my life, avoiding myself, avoiding the reality of the decisions I had made, and also avoiding the gravitas of what I was about to do and what I was about to promise to someone else. And I ran away. I quite literally became a runaway bride and I ran away to Argentina to be alone, to try to find some understanding and peace with myself about why things felt so messy and blurry and chaotic at this point in my life. And going to Argentina, I remember the feeling so well of being on that plane. It was a largely empty flight at night, leaving out of JFK. And I was so scared. I couldn't believe that I had actually gotten on the plane. And I remember landing in Buenos Aires and the feeling of being completely alone in this country and in this continent and realizing that there's no one looking out for me here, that I have to be my own best friend. I have to be my own guardian. I have to be the person to watch my own back. And there was something so daunting and at once inspiring about that. And while I was in Buenos Aires, I, on a whim, booked a trip to the border to Iguazu National Park and that is really the the crux of Call You When I Land and the moment that sort of lights the match because that is the first time where I'm completely alone in the jungles of Argentina and confronting myself finally on what exactly am I doing with my life and whether I want to get married. And 
I just love that trip so much because it it really I still looking back, I still can't believe I did it. <laughs> I can't believe well, it was ballsy. I, most most brides yeah. would be like going to Las Vegas with their friends or maybe Cancun, <laughs> but you go, honey, yeah. I'm gonna see you later. I'll see you at the wedding. I'm going off on my own. That should have been a warning sign to him. He was very patient, by the way, Alex. He was very patient with you. He was. He this. was very patient. And I have to I have to give him due credit here because when I told him that I was going to write this book, um, you know, he was very supportive. And the one thing he said, which I held on to throughout the writing process was as long as you're fair, as long as you are fair and and honest about what happened. And I really tried to hold on to that because I never wanted this book to be painting me as the heroine of the story. I wanted to be very honest and raw about my mistakes and my stumbles and my falls, because I really believe that all of that kind of led me to where I am today. And I wanted to honor um, what he said when I set out to write this book, which was to really not paint him as the villain or paint myself as, you know, escaping this terrible relationship. I wanted it to be real. And I hope that I hope that it is. Well, I don't think there were any villains. I mean, his vision of what he wanted and your vision of what you wanted just suddenly didn't work anymore. Yeah. It happens a lot with 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 relationships and marriage. I mean, you know, sometimes I wonder, you know, when you marry someone for life, man, things can really change. Oh boy! <laughs> um, and you fell out of love. I mean, you know, you loved him, but you fell out of in love. And he wanted the house in Westchester with the you know suburban. And I and you you wanted the world, and I got it. I totally get it. And uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes we say yes. Sometimes women say yes to the ring way too fast. They get caught up in that moment and we all need to slow it down because we don't have to get married by a certain time. We don't have to get, have babies, but we don't have to do anything that we're not 150 million percent ready and think we want. And sometimes when you think you want it, then you realize you don't. So I think you really, you know, were, you, you were fairly raw and open about it because that was a costly blunder. I mean, you know, you had people who booked tickets, they were, oh my gosh, deposits. yeah, you had to heal a lot of <laughs> wounds and there was a lot of financial loss. So that was a, a pretty costly decision on all parts. Um, hopefully everybody's fine now, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's funny. Be, I mean, it's not funny. It was, it was very uh, traumatic at the time, but huh. In the aftermath, a lot of people came up to me, um, especially family, and were like, why didn't you just do it? Just go down the aisle. Just do it. You could have gotten divorced on the back end. Just go through the wedding. Yeah, but that's expensive, too. It's expensive, too. But the thing is, and again, you know, at this point, I'm in my mid-20s and very idealistic and, and romantic, but I, I'm glad that I I made this decision because I didn't want to walk down the aisle and promise myself to someone who I already knew I no longer loved and who I already knew I didn't want to spend my life with. And something about standing up in front of everyone I know and making that vow, knowing that it's not real, was too much of a lie to carry and too much of a lie to execute. And spoiler alert, I'm actually getting married next week. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I know. Congratulations. You met Thank someone you. else. So you found love again. And he sounds awesome. I, you know, did, I think yeah. I think a lesson for everybody out there, you know, do it, you know, don't worry what other people think, because if you really don't love someone, don't go down that aisle. It's exactly. a long road 
to misery, yeah. both of you, and you're hurting a couple of lives there. You're hurting two lives. Um, exactly. That person of finding someone else who truly, truly loves them. So exactly. you found love and congratulations. And he likes to travel. That's cool. He does. And I'm so happy I saved that moment because now next Thursday, when I go down the aisle, I stand behind every word I say and every vow. And I'm so glad that I saved that for my future self. Um, but I have yeah. to say, going yeah. through the motions of wedding planning and this time being really in it, like really involved again, I cannot believe I had the audacity <laughs> to call it off like a week before. And it, I'm yeah. so glad I did, but my God. <laughs> it was gutsy. Speaking was gutsy. of gutsy, speaking of gutsy, I'm amazed. One of the things I'm amazed about is travel writers. I don't quite get it. Uh, maybe you can, you know, travel writers seem to be traveling a lot on their own dime uh, to write articles for paltry pay. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm I blessed. I worked for a PR agency. I had international clients. They paid my way and paid me for my time. That was win-win. Now I go on free press trips, which you talk about in the book, The Press Junket, and I've written about, and I had to laugh because I'm I'm that person. And you go on the free trips, and I have friends who still don't understand what that's about, including my own late mother, who said, all you do is go on free trips. You're a freeloader, or not a freelancer, and you just sit and post about things and write about things, but you don't make any money. But, but I'm getting paid. At least all expenses are paid. Do, do travel writers just travel on their dime all the time and then <laughs> write articles? You know what? It's uh, I have so many thoughts about this. Okay, yeah. so they should not be traveling on their own time and writing articles. And this is where press trips come into play. Mm -hmm. I was recently speaking at a at IMM this uh, this national media conference, and uh, press trips was a was a topic of conversation. And the thing about press trips, um, and uh, for those who don't know. Uh, press trips are when journalists and content creators are invited at the behest of a tourism board or hotel or brand to experience a destination. And it is uh, typically a comped trip in exchange for coverage. And the thing about press trips is that these press trips um, are really a hot button issue in terms of journalistic ethics, because you have publications that really will not consider, entertain, or accept any pitches from writers who have gone on a press trip. Because the argument is, how could that story be possibly unbiased if it was paid for? And that's that's a fair argument. Mm -hmm. On the other side of it, you have writers are being paid peanuts and their livelihood is contingent on being able to find stories and these press trips allow them the opportunity to do so. I am a very big supporter of the latter. I think that writers should have the opportunity to travel. I think that it is part of their job to go out there and see the world, and it shouldn't be at the expense of maxing out a credit card, especially at the rates that we pay as publications, and that if publications want to um, admonish writers for not getting the stories at their own dime, then they really need to pay writers more. And um, <clears throat> exactly, they need to pay them better rate wages. They need to pay them better rates for their stories. And so I'm a senior editor over at Voters Travel for the digital publication. And I'm very, very proud and happy to say that <clears throat> I'm very proud to say that Voters has an open press trip policy, which is to say that we 
we encourage our writers to take press trips. It doesn't matter if you are on your first assignment or you are on your millionth. Uh, we really believe in the power of writers taking press trips and having the ability to experience a destination and get stories from it. Thank you. I mean, I I went from running a public relations business and organizing press trips and getting paid to do it and traveling. So it was the win-win. Uh, and I have such empathy having gone to the other side on my own choice because I got sick of PR. I know you did a little stint in it for a brief time. I couldn't take it any longer. <laughs> I got sick from it. Just follow my dream to become a writer. My income went to, no, I can't even imagine what my tax, I just filed my taxes. I'm crying, but you know, it was a dream. <laughs> But if it weren't for the press trips, I did eight paid, all expense paid press trips to wine regions in the first half of the year, which I call my grief tour because my mother had just died. And if it weren't for those trips, I think I would have gone down a bad rabbit hole. Those trips and being in the vineyards and being and interviewing and doing those stories, I think it saved my mental health. And I got like dozens and dozens of beautiful stories and interviews out of them. So I couldn't have done that without having all the expenses paid. And I believe it too, but it's a whole industry debate, which is a whole nother thing. That said, what is the craziest thing you ever did for a trip <laughs> to secure a trip besides run away from a wedding? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was absolutely pretty crazy. I have to say um, my most wild trip in terms of getting the story, which I talk about in the book, has to be when I went to Bogota to basically investigate a mysterious family murder that had sort of haunted me since I was a teenager. And um, and in order to investigate this murder, I had to interview what I call in the book the, the big bad wolf, which is what I had grown up thinking of as the big bad wolf, which is FARC, which was a narco-terrorist organization in Colombia and then following the peace deal actually became a recognized political party, which is pretty, pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but this was the first time that I really like I went and I got myself a fixer, which for those who don't know, fixers are people who are kind of on the ground to help foreign journalists get the interviews they need. Mm -hmm. I This was an individual trip uh, with like collaborated with my publication that I was working for at the time. I set up interviews with like the vice president of the country, ex-FARC fighters. It felt very like maybe one of my realist and uh, most ballsy stories because I really kind of submerged myself in uh, Colombian politics and trying to understand not only this country, but in the context of this personal sort of family mystery that had happened. It was really intense. And it was, you know, it, it showed your depth and breadth as a writer, because a lot of people think about travel writers and they, you know, think about, you know, listicles um, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. 38 hours in or, you know, all inclusives or the 10 best rest. You know, it's always listicles now. It's so annoying. But this was very you know, the, 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 <laughs> the publication you were writing for at that time. As I read, I was like, well, that's my dream job. Unfortunately, that dream job dumped you like, you know, oh, my gosh, you yeah. they didn't even let you go get your stuff. I, which is, you know, really had my hair on end because once again, this is a tough business. The media business, well, all businesses, but media business is pretty tough. I mean, you're in, you're mm. out. You're in, you're out. You're, you have an outlet, you don't have an outlet. And 
you know, I'm on a lot of travel. I'm on a lot of, you know, Facebook sites where a lot of travelers, particularly the travel writers, because I'm on the beverage of the food writers as well. But it seems like the travel writers have the biggest, toughest challenges, getting assignments, getting paid, having stories stolen, having bylines stolen. What the hell? You know, I'm (laughs) all for protecting writers. And I thought that story because it did involve um, a, a, a terrible situation that happened to a member of your family was very revealing. How did you find your voice as a writer and how would you describe that today, which is very different from editor, obviously? You know, my voice throughout the book and I should say throughout my life has really evolved. And what I try to do in the book is I try to show sort of how both my relationship with travel evolves And with it, so does my writing. So you find me in the beginning of the book and both writing and travel are such an emotional crutch. It's something that I use to run away from life. It's something that I use to hide in. I use travel as a means of just avoidance. And I use writing as a means of just almost like a diary entry, just trying to figure out the, you know, the wildness of my own brain. And then that evolves. Once I get a little bit older and I kind of land my first on-staff editorial job, my relationship with travel and writing shifts so that with travel, it becomes all about getting the story, trying to understand a destination and the people who live there and the stories that are impactful. And my writing as a result starts to take a turn where I'm no longer the focal point and it's no longer the classic woman lost in the world, figuring herself out in the context of a beautiful destination. It starts to turn the spotlight outward so that I'm looking at other people's stories and the country I'm in and what it means for them. And I, and I love that evolution. And you mentioned the job that, that the job that uh, laid me off and sort of that whole story, um, You know, the thing about that job is that it really gave me a playground with which to develop as a writer and to have my relationship with travel change. And for as for as ridiculous as that uh, being let go was and the scene in the book, which I won't spoil, but uh, is very, very funny in retrospect, um, it sets me on course because not only does that allow me to find my voice, it also inspires me to want to lift other people's voices, particularly the voices of women. And that is really what leads me onto my next path, which is Unearth Women, the magazine and uh, publication that I then end up finding. And that I think is the the culmination of sort of everything leading up to that point with how my writing evolved and my experience with travel. And it all comes to this beautiful place of, okay, other people out there have really important stories to tell and I want to be the one to help them tell it. And that is really what ushers in Unearth Women. And it's a wonderful transition because, and we won't do any spoilers, but you know, it was a crazy <laughs> ending to a really what I thought was the ideal job. And and you and you definitely evolved um, because really journalism or what they say is journalism, because everybody says is look at me or look at the world. And some people travel to escape. Some people travel to embrace. Mm-hmm. And I think many people start as escape and then they move into embrace as they evolve uh, as as travelers with a capital T versus junketeers versus explorers. There's many types of travel. Uh, I loved Unearth Women. Uh, you worked really hard at it. 
there were lessons to learn from it. Uh, as I wrote about it, I thought about this own show and my other show, The Connected Table Live, which evolved after I closed M. Young Communications, underwent breast cancer, wrote a book, and then had to figure out what I wanted my identity to be. And I wanted to be a storyteller. And it was all about finding a voice. Mm -hmm. uh, after going through cancer and realizing that I had reached the pinnacle of what I was doing and there was nowhere to go but down <laughs> so or sell out. <laughs> so it's an evolution. And, and I think it's important that, you know, we underscore that's what life is. Anyway, Unearthed Women had enormous success, you know, great PR, success, et cetera. And yet the magazine had to seize publication, which was hard, difficult. Mm, and yeah. what was the what was the takeaway from all of that? Because I don't know, I, I, I would have had a tough time putting all that love into something. I've <laughs> yeah. done it. Well, actually, I put a lot of love into something. And, and I had the most upsetting thing that's happened to me once at a Christmas table, besides this, my aunt who asked me what it's like to be a freeloader. And I had to say, <laughs> excuse me, I'm a freelancer. <laughs> and then the next year, this same aunt, who's now I'll never do a Christmas with said, what was it like to uh, have your business fail? And I oh said, my I didn't God. fail. I chose to close <laughs> it because it no longer brought me joy. But there are people who just don't understand. Oh Which my God. Unearthed woman. You created something beautiful, but beautiful things can't always be sustainable because it always boils down to, and you were very honest about, you're not a numbers person. Nope. <laughs> nope. I hear you. Not. <laughs> That's why I closed my business. My dad was the numbers person. He died. I got cancer. I couldn't deal. I'm sick of this shit. You, unfortunately, <laughs> the magazine kind of slipped away. What are you doing with Unearthed Women as, as a concept now? Because we understand the print version didn't work. And that's a shame. But these days, there are very few print versions of anything working. Uh, what are you doing with Unearthed Women now? Well, I'm happy to say that Unearthed Women still exists. And yay. The biggest journey and the biggest takeaway from Unearth Woman was that when I started Unearth Woman, the concept in its purest form was just to have an outlet that would champion women's stories mm -hmm. and lift women's voices and point travelers in the direction of women in BIPOC-owned businesses to sort of give them an alternative guide to destinations that they see. And somewhere along the way, uh, glitter is sort of just thrown in my eyes and I, and I lose track of that. And I lose track of that initial intention because suddenly it becomes all about the magazine. And to your point, the magazine had this explosive meteoric like rise that I don't think anybody saw coming. I mean, we went from this concept that was being talked about to within a year, it being sold in over 800 Barnes and Noble locations across the country and bookstores around the world. And it was just like, oh my gosh, like you were just holding on for dear life. It was such a, a rocket launch. And I found that to be so thrilling and so intoxicating that at a certain point, I forgot that it wasn't about the magazine and it was never meant to be about the magazine. It was always meant to be about the stories. And so when Unearth Woman magazine folded, because largely I'm not a numbers person, but also just a myriad of factors, uh, it took me some time to realize and get back on my feet, but to realize what I had forgotten, which is that Unearth Woman will always exist because there will always be a need 
to have a place to champion women. And it exists now as a digital platform. It continues to share stories, but it is absolutely a passion project. And that was a personal realization for me, which is to say, not only am I not a numbers gal, I don't have a desire to run it like a business. And I'm a writer, I'm a storyteller, I'm a creator. And those things I know true to be true about myself. But as far as all the nuances of running a startup, the marketing meetings, the advertising meetings, the going out and trying to get investment, all of the kind of nitty gritty details, I felt so bogged down by it with Unearthed Woman that I lost track of what I actually love to do. And so I'm really happy with kind of how it all came out in the end because now Unearth Woman is this beautiful place that I can write the stories I love to write. I can champion women's voices and it is, it's mine. It's mine, which is, you know, when I lost that job, I realized the importance of having something that is your own that can't be taken away. Mm-hmm. And during the pandemic, when I was laid off again, along with so, so, so many people, I had Unearthed Women and I had this beautiful place with, with which I could tell the stories of women-run distilleries that were now churning out hand sanitizer or that woman chef down in Florida whose restaurant closed but who had taken out a food truck so she could feed her community or nurses on the front lines. And I had that place to tell those stories. So I, I'm very, very proud of Unearth Woman. I have a lot of love for it and I'm happy that it still exists in the way that it does and that now I can just focus on the writing, focus on the storytelling. And that's what it should have always been. I think that's wonderful. I have a question for you because this is posed to me a lot because Fearless Fabulous, you started as a, it still is a passion project um, <laughs> because I love, for all the reasons you do on Earth Women, uh, the connected table and make a little bit of money because we have sponsored content options. Yay. But you never, I don't have a budget. <laughs> You've heard that. I don't have a budget. Yes, oh you my do, gosh. because you're getting paid publicists $10,000 a month. Somebody has a budget. <laughs> but I could go on about that because I've been on the other side. But what do you say? Because this comes up to me. What do you say when people go, why do you, how do you monetize it? That mm. people always ask me that. I mean, everybody, how are you monetizing? First of all, <laughs> it's none of your business. But usually I've learned to say, well, I have people like you who write me checks because you support me. I just flip it right back. But what do you say to people who do not understand the concept of a passion project? Well, here's what I'll say, and I'll be very honest. Mm-hmm. Unearth Women, once upon a time, when we were trying to run it like a business, and I say right. we because once upon a time, it was about 15 women strong working all remotely on contract. There was a time when the name of the game was trying to monetize it. That was all we could think about. That was all we were trying to do. Now that Unearth Women is largely my passion project, it's not monetized. And I'm okay with that. I work full-time as a senior travel editor. I am an author. I have this book. I have the book I wrote before it, Wanderous, which is a woman's travel guide that came out last year from Penguin Random House. And so I have my revenue streams that allow me to pay the bills and pay the rent. And Unearthed Woman is there for joy. And, and for people who may not understand the concept of a passion project, it's, it's a hobby. It's something that gives you happiness at the end of the day and something that is yours. 
that isn't a responsibility, a to-do list, something that you have to begrudgingly cross off at the end of the day. It's something that is there to purely give you fulfillment and joy and happiness. And it's a form of self-care. And that is how I see Unearth Woman. It is my self-care. I completely agree with you. I mean, Fearless Fabulous You is my way of giving back and helping lift up other people and Mm -hmm. do what I love, which is storytelling. And if I can make money other ways doing it, then I do this, you know, every year. I'm in my 10th season starting. My husband's like, why are you still doing this? You're not making any money. (laughs) Well, you know, you don't get it. So you don't get it. You're not a woman. But, you know, then I see a story and I go, this is such a great story. I want to share it. And I think the message to listeners is, Passion projects are, as you said, Nikki, a form of self-care. And we yes. are all about self-care. We're always under pressure to, you know, deliver. What are the deliverables at work? What are the deliverables? That's, you know, your kids, your school, your image. You know, it's just a passion project. It's like, like it's like great. It's like it just is. something you just love doing. And it could be anything. It could just be like reading a book a week or something, you know? I think think as women, and I'm about to get on my soapbox a little bit here, but I really truly believe that women especially are pulled in so many different directions. Mm -hmm. And we say yes a lot and we overextend ourselves and we apologize for needing to take time to ourselves or being too tired or not having the bandwidth. And we juggle so many roles and so many commitments. And I think it is just so important to have something that is just yours, whatever right. it is. If it's an hour a day to read that book or to watch that show or to go for that run or to to knit that sweater, whatever it is. I think it's so important in the avalanche of responsibilities and things that are constantly tugging at our sleeve to have something that is just there to make you smile. And I think that all women need that. And for me, Unearthed Woman is that. Well, I think that you're so on point. And to that effect, so I read uh, Call You When I Land. It was a weekend. I'm dealing with, you know, after two years of blissful. So my husband and I sold our house and 90% of our possessions to live on the road. I wanted to be out of debt. I wanted to be free. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to figure out where I was going to live next. And Frances Mays was my role model in a year in the world. I know yours was Elizabeth Gilbert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do love Frances Mays too, though. I love. So I was going to go live in Europe and you know, we're going to spend a year just blah, 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 and hang out with vintners and just write about it. And then the pandemic happened. So we couldn't really go to Europe. So we just traveled up and down the East Coast and lived here and there and did back roads and everybody followed us. And it was the happiest year of my life. And there was PPP money. And I got a, you know, I lived on like everybody else's money and traveled. It was like awesome. And then my mother fell, got mm. sick, and I had to go become a caretaker, which is accidental, a big accidental journey to another trip I didn't really want to take, but I didn't have a choice. So I had to turn that into another voyage of discovery. Long story short, uh, caretaking became death planning to afterlife dealing. My mother was a hoarder, and I'm sorting out a lot of stuff in the house. So the bliss of sitting down last weekend and reading Call You When I Land, uninterrupted by the pool, lolling around. I never get to loll around. I'm always on a to-do list of what I got to post and sell because I need money because I'm not making you doing this. You know, not having to post and list on Facebook and eBay and do all this and figure out how I'm going to get rid of all the stuff in the house. Just reading Call You When my when I Land was such a blissful journey of just doing what I love, which is sitting down and reading a good book. 
So I want to thank you for that because it it made me smile and it made me realize it's okay just to sit and do something you enjoy, turn off, you know, your phone, turn off, you know, social media, which just takes up so much time because <laughs> you're under pressure because you got to deliver, you're an author, you're a podcaster, you got to have numbers. Just reading a book. It's so nice. And reading one that's not self-help, because usually I'm pitched self-help books. <laughs> like, I don't want to read about, you know, grief and caretaking yeah. anymore. I've been there. I could tell I could write that. But this was so refreshing because it was about reality, about, you know, travel, yay, doing something daring, calling off a wedding, traveling solo, which I've done. And, you know, sometimes what stays in Jamaica, like happened in Jamaica needs to stay in Jamaica. That's all I'm gonna say. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> uh, but you know, being gutsy and then finding, you know, the balance, uh, I think it's great. I'm, I'm excited for your next chapter. I mean, you've got a job. Yay. Jobs are good right now, but you also have something you own, which is important underneath women and you're getting married and you're going, where are you going on honeymoon? We're going to South Africa next uh, weekend. I went on. That's where I went. <laughs> oh, did you? Oh my gosh. Yeah. We're in South Africa, Joburg, Cape town. Um, talk about things I did for love and recklessly I maxed out a credit card to do way too many safaris. We went to Joburg, Victoria Falls. We oh, went to Botswana. Gorgeous. We went to two camps in Botswana to see elephants and hippos and stay in, you know, um, places like you write about where you can hear people chewing outside your tent. <laughs> then we went to South Africa, of course, being a wine writer. My husband's a wine writer. We dove deep into um Wineland, more safaris. Oh, we're going and, there because yeah. I spend I spend New Year's, which is my birthday, in a different city of the world, which is a requirement of marrying me. You have to be willing to travel on New Year's. It's non-negotiable. I've been doing this since I was thirty, so I'm a lot older. So maybe fifteen years this year, I'm turning sixty-five. So we had to go spend uh, New Year's Day at the Cape Good Hope with the monkeys, so I could get that picture and document it in my travel diary that I was in South Africa. So that's what we did, and I spent. Oh, that's incredible a small Porsche. I liquidated like my stock portfolio to get married and pay for this crazy trip. Okay. That was really stupid because I probably have a big, you know, a lot of money now, but it was the greatest experience of my life. Well, that's what it's about do I mean, it. at the end of the day. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the thing. It's like what you said, by the way, about sitting by the pool and reading call you when I land. Thank you. That is just such a compliment. My hope Good. is that people will really just allow themselves a moment to be transported and mm -hmm. when I describe this book, Call You When I Land is a travel memoir. Of course, it's full of wanderlust, but it's a love story. It's a murder mystery. It's a coming of age story. It's a story about the ebbs and flows of chasing your career. It's a story about trying to make your way in New York and being spit out and chewed up and learning to stand on your own two feet. Mm -hmm. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to read it. And I'm so happy you enjoyed it and saw glimmers of yourself in its pages because that is, that's my biggest hope as an author. And mm -hmm. when I was in my mid twenties and when I was sort of living the beginning of Call You When I Land and that sort of tumultuous solo trip in Argentina right before calling off my wedding, I was carrying uh, travel memoirs with me from Cheryl Strayed, from Elizabeth Gilbert, from Frances Mays. I was carrying these books with me because I loved so much how each of these books featured a woman who was unashamed in the fact that she was lost and figuring right. it out and stumbling around in her mind and out in the world 
and trying to reach for the person that she'll become. And I remember reading these books and inhaling them. And I and I have such a clear image of literally sleeping in my hostel in Buenos Aires with these books pressed against my spine like they were big spooning me because I was so scared of what I was doing and I felt so alone and these books were my friends. And I have read those books time and time again. And I hope that Call You When I Land is a homage to those books because it was such a transform transformative read for me when I was at that age. And, and it still is those books. It's there's something so comforting about seeing another woman admit, Hey, I don't have it all figured out. I'm not perfect. I'm figuring it out, but I'm getting there and I am reaching towards happiness and I'm reaching towards fulfillment and it's okay. And I love those stories so much. And I hope that Call You When I Land can offer some of that to readers. I think so. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, when I had to sell 90% of our possessions, my dog-eared a year in the world, my travel books and God knows my diaries were the first thing to get packed up and carefully <laughs> shipped here to Tennessee where they still are in the basement. And as when I pack 100, my parents were both authors and journalists and the books are everywhere. And my husband's like, okay, we got to throw these out. And I'm like, no, we don't throw out books. Somebody <laughs> took the time to write that book. I want to honor them by passing it on. So I'm like peppering all the little mini libraries all over Chattanooga. I love these books because I, I can't bear to throw it. I, I want people to read. Uh, I think it's a terrific story. Your journey is still continuing. Uh, so there, I know there'll be more books. I can't wait to read Wanderous. Uh, we didn't have time to talk about travel hacks, but <laughs> I always say take pictures, leave footprints and store yes. the memories. What do you tell people about traveling as a final wisdom of a travel <laughs> traveler? Be flexible in your travel plans. That's that's my biggest <laughs> piece of advice as a travel editor, as a travel writer, as an author. If you want to travel, particularly snag affordable flights, be mm -hmm. flexible, be willing to leave on a Tuesday at an odd time, be willing yeah. to fly back on a Monday at an odd time. If you travel at the times that other people don't, you'll find a lot of savings and it'll still be beautiful. I have yeah, been Christmas to Christmas day is an awesome day yeah. to travel. Nobody's I in the airport. Exactly. I have been to many destinations also off season and they were glorious. I went to, um, I was maybe last year or two years ago. No, it, it must've been before the pandemic actually. <laughs> um, but I went to Cannon beach out on the Oregon coast mm -hmm. and I went beautiful. in the off season mm -hmm. and it was so beautiful and free of crowds. And I just loved that Pacific Northwest gloomy mm -hmm. weather that was so cozy and like fall-like. So that's my advice. Be flexible and be willing to travel when other people aren't if you really want to get those travel savings. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm all for that. Shoulder season. Awesome. Oh, um, so good. And think, be be socially conscious and understand the customs, do your homework before you go somewhere. Yes. So you don't like step on someone, touch someone's head, go, you know, there's so many wrong things um, to do. Uh, so be sense, culturally sensitive 
when yes, you travel. So important. Uh, and also you are an ambassador women, to too. the world, right? As 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 yeah. a as a US citizen, you're an ambassador to the world or whatever citizen you are. Um, I'm I'm a big believer in that. Think about what you say, how you dress, how you comport yourself, because it is a message. Exactly. And also support women. Go yes. shop at women-owned businesses, you know, connect with other female travelers, like yes. support your fellow women, support your fellow women of color, go out there. I mean, mm-hmm. I just think that we have such an impact as travelers, not only in our purchasing power, but also in our ability to influence. And yeah. it doesn't matter if you have 100 followers on social media or a million if you post a photo of yourself doing something interesting or unique in another place, people can see that and think, oh, I want to do that too. And I I use the example of, for example, elephant riding. You know, people see photos of others riding elephants in Southeast Asia and they think, oh God, that looks so cool. I'm going to go ahead and book that too. And not necessarily realizing how unethical that is and how it really comes mm-hmm. at the expense of breaking the elephant physically and mentally to get them to be that malleable. And that's influence. That's power. The ability to influence how other people travel and the decisions they make. And that also goes in tandem with purchasing power. So we have right. a lot of power as travelers. And I think we all, I hope we all wield it carefully. I, I agree with you on that. And for so many reasons, that could be a whole nother conversation in another yeah. level because of, <laughs> of human rights violations and treatment of women when you travel. Mm-hmm. Think about those countries. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Nikki Vargas. The book again is Call You When I Land. Uh, you know, as I always say, take the trip, drink the sip, eat the cake, stop worrying about your weight or what other people think. Just do it. I love that. Live life on your, as I always say at the end of every show, a fearless, fabulous you, you have the choice to do what you want and follow your dream. Don't rely on everybody else's opinion, form your own and always choose to live life on your terms. Thank you. Mm, It's beautiful. That is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 